To finish this story, let's go back to the beginning. I first heard the name Big Willie Robinson in spring 2017. I was visiting a dusty car lot in the San Fernando Valley to interview Ted Moser, the owner of Picture Car Warehouse, a company that outfits vehicles for Hollywood productions. Moser showed me around, and he stopped at a broken-down race car. It looked like something out of Mad Max, and it had a crazy backstory. Moser said someone named Big Willie once owned it. They picked it up in the 70s. He hand-built it, obviously. He towed this car all over the country. I couldn't believe it. It was a mess. The roof was missing, and the footwells were filled with cobwebs. The Plymouth looked like a cop car. Willie actually called it the Police Daytona. Its paint was fading, but you could read the lettering on the door. Street Racers, Inc., National and International Brotherhood. At the time, those words meant nothing to me. So Moser told me about Willie. And the Crips and the Bloods and the Blacks and the Mexicans and the Whites. Once they stepped within Willie's gates, they were all brothers. And he preached it and lived it. It's all about cars. Now, I can hear Willie. I got to make this clear. Our main goal at that racetrack is brotherhood. Let me hear. Now, what we are trying to produce... All right. The Plymouth set me off on an unexpected journey. If I hadn't gone to interview Moser that day, I would never know Big Willie Robinson's story. And neither would you. Willie died largely forgotten, but he's someone people should know about. He was a man with a message that was at once bold and earnest. And yet he lied to get somewhere. But perhaps his biggest flaw was letting the world believe he was larger than life. I'm Daniel Miller staff writer at the Los Angeles Times, and this is the final episode of Larger Than Life, a documentary podcast about L.A. street racer Big Willie Robinson. By the mid-2000s, Brotherhood Raceway had been closed for a decade. It was now a ghost track, exactly what Big Willie had once worried it would become. Car culture was changing. The priorities of police and politicians were shifting, too. But, of course, Willie continued to pursue the same old plan of reopening the track. He was now in his 60s, a kind of elder statesman. And with Tomiko by his side, he'd keep fighting, just as he always had. She helped give him confidence to believe he could not only change L.A., but the world. But they now had money trouble. And Tomiko had stopped taking her blood pressure medicine, her cousin Karen Daniels told me. Maybe because she couldn't afford it anymore. A little bit after that, she had a mild stroke. While Tamika was in the hospital, Willie slept in his car. He didn't want to go home. And things got worse. The next thing I know, I get a call that she had, was, she had a stroke, and I went over there. And it was, oh, I just couldn't stop crying. It was just, I knew she wasn't going to recover. Tamika died on April 29th, 2007. At 57 her heart suddenly stopped beating. Fabian Arroyo remembers when he got the news. She died in his arms. I was, I was out of town and he called me and he, he had her in his arms. Nothing could compare to Willie's devastation. He and Tomiko had been married nearly four decades. At her funeral, the program was filled with commendations from LA City Council members, the LAPD, and a US congressman. They achieved so much together. But in the aftermath of Tomiko's death, Willie would struggle to accomplish much of anything. 
Why can't you do a, a protest today? You don't think that would be effective? Uh, to be honest with you, you know, a lot of the fight because of losing Tomiko, a lot of the fight has gone out of me. It seemed like he didn't know how to be Big Willie anymore. When Fabian would check in on him, he hadn't eaten in I can't tell you how long. He was losing a lot of weight. Friends did everything they could to cheer Willie up. Fabian and other Brotherhood members helped him work on his cars. And even when he made the ill-advised decision to cut the roof off the police Daytona, they supported him because they could see that working on a car helped. It was a connection to Tomiko. On the doors of the Plymouth, it says, Drivers and Owners, Tomiko and Big Willie, in blocky lettering. Brotherhood members tried to remind him that he was the king of the street racers. A few months after Tomiko's death, they took him to the final race at Los Angeles County Raceway. Willie got to announce the action. It put a little fire back in him, understanding what he was supposed to do. And he was out there, and he was Big Willie again. He was in front of a mic announcing. It was great. In 2009, Willie connected with Michael Deutsch, who was putting on an event about an hour's drive from Chicago called the Legends of Drag Racing. Willie said that Deutsch told him he was a legend and that he owed his fans a visit after so many years. But Willie was reluctant. I said, oh, man, since my wife died, I haven't gone nowhere. I'm just right here. I'm still grieving and stuff. So I said, I'll think about it. So I turned on the TV. The commentators say, well, as you know out there, Chicago is now number one murder city in the United States. I said, wow, I got the message. Willie held out the violence as a call to action, just like decades ago. He had lost his track and the love of his life. What was left for him to do but remember the better times? At the Legends event, he posed for photos and shared stories with fans. Around this time, Willie also traveled to the Mopar Nationals in Ohio. During the trip, Willie and friend Rick Gorski went to a car cruise, where they spotted an armored personnel carrier that was part of the procession. It was decked out in camouflage and flying American and military flags. Gorski and Willie waved over the driver, hopped onto the carrier, and traveled down the cruise route to Cheers. We were all in tears. How can you not be in tears seeing this giant of a man being absorbed and, and welcomed? It was like a parade just for him. He felt the love that weekend that he didn't feel when he came home from Vietnam. Gorski told me the story before I learned of Willie's deceit about his war service. It's hard to listen to this now. We will never really know why Willie lied about Vietnam. At this point, though, it seems like slipping into that character was less about him trying to do good and more about him. Despite his grief, Willie did make another attempt at reopening Brotherhood Raceway. Seven months after Tomiko's death, Willie was back in front of the Harbor Commission, asking for help. He just didn't know any other way. We're going for a temporary situation because we have a crisis out on the streets and, um, and we want to uh, eliminate the crisis. In the past, when it's time for us to go, we go. Willie made only a modest case for the return of his track. It wasn't convincing. But listening to his voice crack with emotion, it's easy for me to understand why he couldn't muster more. Willie was heartbroken. 
In return, the president of the Harbor Commission offered him little more than well wishes. It's good to see you again, and thank you for coming. Well, I talk to God every day. It's a rough time. Our question is whether the Lord is really listening to us or not. I hope so. I hope so. At least Tommy goes up there telling him, hey, listen to him. He used to will things into happening. That time had passed. Willie was stuck on the same track, unable to move forward. And the world he once ruled was moving on at high speed. More than a half century has passed over the course of this podcast. Big Willie's L.A. doesn't really exist anymore. These days, the Brotherhood and cops don't have much of a relationship. The spirit of cooperation is largely gone, and Brotherhood members told me that police have taken an increasingly hard line. When the cops do show up to a race, people flee, and accidents happen. In a, in a sense, it's become us against them. Last year, my L.A. Times colleagues James Queeley and Nicole Santa Cruz wrote about how racers push the limits in pursuit of internet fame. And one police official told Queeley that the Brotherhood is a tiny part of the whole street racing community, making it an ineffective partner to try to improve relationships. The people that go out there that are trying to get Instagram famous, that are doing donuts in the middle of uh, you know, South L.A., they're like 20, 22. They kind of don't care about the scene veterans. That's the LAPD's viewpoint. It needs to be said. Other problems on our roads are far bigger and deadlier than street racing, like drunk driving. So police have more pressing concerns. But street racing isn't going away. And if police don't see the one group that has long advocated for a safer way to race as an effective partner, it could explain why relationships have deteriorated. I'd say it's rocky at best. Brotherhood Raceway has now been closed for 24 years, more than twice as long as it was ever open. But Brotherhood members like Donald Galaz still dream of reviving their track. We're not going to give up. Big Willie would never want us to stop. It's going to end with me when my casket goes in the ground, too, and I'm going to continue to fight the good fight. But with little political support or money behind the effort, it's closer to a daydream. Part of the reason Big Willie was able to get politicians and police on his side was timing. After the tragedy of the uprising in Watts and the L.A. riots three decades later, they listened. And to his credit, Willie made the most of his opportunities. I was reminded of that by Brenda Stevenson, professor of African-American history at UCLA. The LAPD was considered the enemy of the people, uh, Black people and Latino people in particular. And he made an opening for himself to be a peacemaker. And I think that that's really his innovation. Big Willie was a rare bridge between the streets and law enforcement in Los Angeles. Stevenson told me that she wasn't aware of any figure today who at a citywide level is trying to close the chasm between the LAPD and whole swaths of L.A. that don't trust the police. As the last decade has shown, a traffic stop can quickly turn tragic for a black person. Texas had Sandra Bland. Minnesota had Philando Castile. So it would take quite the hero to bring people together the way Big Willie did decades ago. It does take a very unusual person to be able to convince each side that indeed you're on their side too and that you can help them work together with people that they feel like are their enemies. That may be so. Though there are other people, gang interventionists, community organizers, and others, whose goals are in line with those of Big Willie. While they may not have celebrity to leverage, there are some public figures who have pursued their own vision of peace. People like the late Grammy-nominated rapper Nipsey Hussle 
who was killed in March. Nipsey grew up in South LA and was a member of the Rollin' 60s Crips at one point. But rather than leave his neighborhood once he got famous, Nipsey became an activist and community organizer. He invested in the area, opening an educational center and a clothing store that employed felons. And yet he was gunned down in front of that store, allegedly killed by a member of the gang he once ran with. On the day Nipsey died, an old friend of Willie's from the Harbor Commission spoke up about the rapper and the good he'd been doing. Los Angeles Police Commission President Steve Soboroff tweeted that he'd been scheduled to meet with Nipsey the next day to discuss ways the rapper could help stop gang violence. When I read that, I thought of something Soboroff had once said about Willie, who he'd worked with in the 1990s to try to keep Brotherhood Raceway open. Big Willie was an off-ramp to the freeway to jail. So he was. And we need off-ramps. And we need people like that. Soboroff and the rest of L.A., We'll have to find another off-ramp now. Look, it's easy to be cynical about this. To see so few figures following Willie's path in L.A. and then to have one die so senselessly. But one thing Willie's story can actually teach us is to be less cynical. Different people can find common ground. It was Willie's dogged determination, which could veer into stubbornness, that made that possible. This same stubbornness was there even at the end, when he decided to hit the road in 2010 on a new nationwide tour. This time, though, it wouldn't end well. By 2009, Willie had filed for bankruptcy three times in three years and was losing his home in Inglewood to foreclosure. So with little left for him in L.A., he made plans to pull up stakes. Fabian helped publicize a garage sale to unload everything, including Willie's workout equipment and movie collection. Willie was on a mission to get out of town because he did not want to be in that house anymore. He just wanted to be gone. Willie told Brotherhood members that he was heading out on another cross-country tour in his motorhome, just like the good old days. He talked about it like it was like 1972 all over again, you know, without Tomiko. And he's going to go to all these racetracks and relive all the places he raced at back then. Willie's and Tomiko's nationwide tour is the stuff of Brotherhood lore. For two years, they traveled from car show to car show, track to track. Arguably the most famous street racers in America at the time, their visits caused a stir wherever they went. Four decades later, it wouldn't be the same, no matter what Big Willie insisted. He never fully explained his plans. Some in the Brotherhood heard Willie was making his way home to New Orleans. Then he essentially disappeared, became a ghost. Here's veteran Brotherhood member Mike Bowen. When he left to go down to where we went with his motorhouse, I lost touch. He was trying to do something with his life, but there's nothing left to do. He was trying to do something with his life, but there was nothing left to do. So what was Willie doing? He surfaced in Illinois, where he went to visit Brotherhood member Joe Carter. Their friendship stretched back decades. It cut off to a bizarre start in 1991, when Carter read a story about the street racer in a car magazine. I couldn't believe this. At the end of the article, he put his phone number in the magazine and said, hey, if you want to know more about the Brotherhood, give me a call, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, oh, that can't be real. Carter, who lives near Champaign, Illinois, called and left a message. Eight months later, Willie returned his call. From then on, the two talked at least once a month, Carter said. Or rather, Willie talked and Carter listened. Carter, who was in his late 20s at the time, said that Willie taught him how to better organize his existing car club. He said Willie explained how to keep members in line and build relationships with police. Carter went on to join the Brotherhood, 
and his club eventually became an official chapter of the group. And it, it, it just changed us. I mean, our club became huge. Big Willie wouldn't stand for discrimination and taught Carter to do the same. It was just one big brotherhood, you know, and there were always guys like, oh, well, we're not going up there because there's, there's a whole bunch of Mexican guys up there, a whole bunch of black guys up there, a whole bunch of... No, we, we kicked all that out, and Willie really put that in my head. When Big Willie picked up that phone in 1991 to return Carter's call, it was an improbable gesture. It was both naive and idealistic. And now, it seems even more special. And later, when he was back out on tour, nearly 20 years after Carter first called, Big Willie rang him out of the blue again. He actually called me one night. He goes, hey, Joe, uh, how far are you from Interstate 57? And I went, uh, I don't know, five minutes. And he goes, well, I'm parked at, and I about, I almost fainted. it. I mean, I was like, he's here. And he was driving his famous motorhome pulling the police Daytona. And so I went to the highway. He actually came to visit. Carter said Willie told him that he was one of a handful of Brotherhood members across the country he wanted to visit. Carter was touched, but Willie seemed kind of lost. He wanted to get away and see people. All he would say to me, I was listening to family and relatives. We just wanted to be home. With Tomiko, Willie must have been capable of showing his weakness. But for admirers, like the ones he visited on the road, he had to be a certain way he couldn't really open up to Carter. Before long, Big Willie said goodbye and headed back out onto the interstate. His destination, New Orleans. The end of Willie's life is hard to make sense of. As I was piecing it together, I kept wondering, why did he fall into obscurity, and how did being larger than life lead to his demise? When I was in school, the cool thing was playing Pog Slammers. You were cool if you had them, and you weren't if you didn't. They're a huge collectible. Now, it's Bomba socks that bring out the envy on the schoolyard. Honestly, it's not that surprising. They're the most comfortable kid socks ever. They're colorful, literally bursting with color, and they even have a little bee on them. And they're not just fun, they are comfortable. So comfortable. So send your kids back to school with socks to keep them comfy, colorful, and ready to take on the school year. And since Bombas donates a pair of socks for every pair purchased, you should get yourself some too. I wear Bombas every day, and I love the support they give me on the basketball court. To get you and your kids Bombas, visit bombas.com larger and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash larger for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com larger. Finding the perfect comforter was always such a hassle. All of them looked the same, but none felt right, so I was never sleeping well. I wanted a comforter that was comfortable while keeping me cool so that I could actually get a good night's rest. Now with the Breeze comforter from Buffy, I finally found that perfect comforter. The Breeze's 100% plant-based design is actually breathable, and it keeps you at a perfectly comfortable temperature in a way that polyester and downfill comforters just can't. The Breeze is made out of eucalyptus fabric, which is earth-friendly, softer than cotton, and naturally soothes your skin while keeping you cool. It checks off all the boxes. Plus, it's great knowing I'm buying something that's good for the environment. You can try a comforter in your own bed for free, and if you don't love it, return it at no cost. For larger-than-life listeners, we have an additional special offer. To get $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit Buffy.co and enter the code LARGER. Again, that's code L-A-R-G-E-R at Buffy.co for $20 off your order. 
by 2010, Willie had found his way home to New Orleans. He didn't stay long. Moser, the picture car coordinator, rang him with an opportunity. Come back to L.A., he said, to work on a film about your life as king of the street racers. Willie was so broke that Moser said he wired him money to make the trip. But then, an accident happened. He was loading his motor home, and he dropped a metal toolbox on his foot. A big gaping wound. Had Tomiko been around, she would have driven Willie straight to the ER. But she wasn't, and Willie was proud and penniless. He thought he could get by, because he always had. So rather than go to the hospital, Moser said Willie poured bleach on his wound, wrapped it in duct tape, and headed west. There's a video on the internet that looks to be from his trip back to L.A. In it, a stranger at a gas station admires Willie's motorhome, which is towing the police Daytona. The man with the camera approaches Willie. He's polite, but it's clear he's never heard of Big Willie Robinson. Willie looks ragged, and he seems to have a slight limp. He tells the man about his life and the raceway he once ran. Willie says, Just Google Big Willie. You Google Big Willie, and it will tell you everything. Willie lived long enough to see his fame fade. But his stubbornness remained undiminished. Even after making it back to L.A., Willie still refused to see a doctor about his foot. His treatment over the next year was Clorox. That's right. Willie's self-prescribed treatment was more bleach. Maybe he felt the need to project an aura of invincibility. He was a legend. Legends don't ask for help. Instead, he wound up in a slow, painful slide toward death. He was just waiting. Like, somebody's waiting for a bus to come by and take him away. He was in that sense, like, when's this going to happen? I'm done. People who saw his foot were horrified. One person said you could see the tendons moving. To appease his friends, Willie finally went to the hospital. But it was too late. The gangrene had already started. They were talking about cutting his toes off. And so finally he decided to let them do that. And by, by that time, they ended up cutting the leg off. Willie was miserable. Fabian tried to play to his ego to lift his spirits and get him to engage. He had nurses at Cedar sinai Medical Center call him Big Willie, explaining that the street racer should never be called by just his first name. He and others tried to coax Willie into taking better care of himself, but he wouldn't listen and ignored the regimen prescribed by doctors. So he lost the other foot. Big Willie was no more. He said, look what they've done to me. I used to be six foot, you know, something, and now I'm barely four feet tall. He said, these butchers have just cut me up like nothing. And that was the beginning of the end. And we would come visit Willie at the hospital, and Willie wasn't eating. And so Willie was down to probably 90 pounds, unrecognizable. The doctor said that Willie had to eat or he'd die. So Fabian and Donald Galaz brought him his favorite meal from Carl's Jr. Uh, it was a double uh, $6 burger, two patties. Uh, it was a huge burger. Uh, and he had a certain way with guacamole and all this other stuff. They put on. Then he, he had to have not a shake, but a malt. It had to be a malt. <laughs> By the time I was done, it was like $17. <laughs> Fabian and Galaz, whose brotherhood nickname is Donko, figured he'd finally eat. When I gave it to him, he took two bites and he was done. And that's when I knew he was going to die because he never took two bites. He would finish that burger. 
you know? And I just looked at him and I went, oh my God. And I, even dark on me, we left there and I said, oh, Willie's not going to make it. And, and like I said, me and him. <sighs> me and him would walk out of there, both of us in tears on our hands, two grown men crying. Willie Andrew Robinson III died on May 19th, 2012. He was 69. Heart failure, brought on by his infection, killed him. Fabian offered a different reason. He died of a broken heart. On his death certificate, Willie was listed as a race car driver. But he was also a street statesman, a political activist, and even an occasional bit part actor. Throngs of people came together at his funeral to honor all of that. It was part reunion, part car show, part memorial. He didn't give a damn what color you was or what race you were. He didn't give a shit. You know what I mean? He didn't care if you was a Ku Klux Klan or what the hell you was. Yeah. It was all love that. He had friendships with people that you would never think he had friendships with. People like the president of L.A. Times, Tom Bradley. He could actually cross the aisle in every form possible. He pulled it off. I mean, to have the policeman to say, we're going to help you, I just, that to me was unheard of. I said, man, that's incredible. I mean, police never gave black people anything. To many, Big Willie was more than a man. It was an idea. For the people who really knew him, his death will always be with them. Sobroff, the former harbor commissioner, was at his funeral. In a gesture meant to honor Willie, Sobroff placed his old harbor commission badge inside his casket. I miss him. I miss him for what he did. I miss him for his personality and Tomiko and everything else. Those are the reasons why I'm involved with public service. You know? is to broaden myself and see what's going on and and see what's real. And he is, and he was. What does it really mean for someone to be larger than life? What may come to mind at first is a person who is charismatic, accomplished, influential, or physically impressive. Willie was all of those things. But larger than life can also refer to exaggeration. Maybe even exaggeration so pronounced that it strains credulity and is really just a lie. And the phrase encapsulates Willie in that way, too. These days, it can feel like we live in a period of open-season hatred, and Willie's Pollyanna message of peace may seem silly to some. But keep in mind, even in his day, Big Willie went against the grain. After the Watts riots, when L.A. was torn apart, he saw a different way. And he did it at a time when black men were disrespected and oppressed. Remember what his friend Lloyd Gavin said. In the New Orleans of their youth, young black men could become a pimp, preacher, cab driver, or longshoreman. But Willie dared to dream big, even when the boot was on his neck. You can call Big Willie naive. You can call Big Willie a liar. But you can't discount his guts. And Stevenson, the UCLA professor, said that could still inspire others to take up the mantle. Willie's a really interesting and important example for people not just in L.A., but people across the nation. I think that this is an excellent example of someone who was able to use their unique 
characteristics, their unique personality, and their unique skills to be able to find a path. After months of reporting on Big Willie Robinson, I wanted to see how street racing has fared without him. Because Willie isn't widely known today, and the scene lives on in his absence, is there any sign of his influence? So I headed to the streets he once ruled, spending several weeks unsuccessfully trying to see a race for myself. Eventually, I got a text message from Fabian. All right. You guys? Are you recording? I'm recording. So on a Friday night, I met up with our producer, Grant Irving, and headed to South LA in an extremely slow Kia Soul that I was renting because my car was in the shop. Fabian told us to head to a strip mall parking lot near Compton, and almost as soon as we arrived, 50 or more high-performance cars flooded out of the lot and onto the nearby 91 freeway. We followed them, or at least tried to, the Kia groaning as it struggled to keep up. The racers sped away, but I had a hunch of where they might be going. I got off the freeway and turned onto a side street in Compton, one I'd visited weeks before. Back then, it was empty. Now, the street was filled with dozens of racers. As we drove toward the scrum, two cars slingshot past us. The racing was underway. We parked and made our way toward the action. People crowded the starting line, their mobile phones trained on the cars as they took off. At one point, the driver of a Chevy Camaro lost control right off the line, his car fishtailing wildly mere feet from us as he struggled to maintain control. But it was otherwise an orderly affair. That is, until I heard someone yell 5-0. In an instant, it was chaos. What are we doing now? We're running from the cops. We are across the street from my car. It was up the road a bit, in the direction of a police cruiser whose lights were flashing. But racers were speeding by, making it impossible to cross the street. Dude, where's my car? All right, well, let's be safe here. Car's here. We sprinted across the street and hopped into the Kia. My heart was pounding. I was elated. The good and the bad that can go down when fast cars are unleashed on the streets of LA, I'd finally seen it. And it made me think of Big Willie and his adopted hometown. Let's not forget that even if things eventually fell apart, Willie was met at several crucial junctures by cops and politicians who wanted to help him. Consider the audacity of a city that embraced the idea that Willie put forward and gave him the tools to use street racing of all things to make the city a safer and more unified place. When it comes to wheels, white, black, brown, and yellow, male and female, young and old, rich or poor, from gangbangers to law enforcement. With that formula, you can pull your communities together. What you need is a raceway park in every city and town in the United States. Big Willie was a complicated man, but his dream was simple. He believed in the unifying bond of fast cars. Willie took that idea far, but fell short of his ultimate goal of a racetrack that would outlast him. But there are those who could still pick up where he left off. And it's a safe bet they're out racing tonight in Los Angeles. Well past midnight, we make it to a spot near 135th Street in South LA. 
It's swarmed. Cars are double parked, blocking the road. Hip-hop blares from a black SUV. Someone is selling pupusas out of a van. The pent-up energy of 100 teenagers and 20-somethings thickens the air. Blacks, whites, Latinos, Asians, it's getting louder. Bets are called out. $5 on the Camaro, 20 bucks on the Mustang. Two cars are doing burnouts, preparing to race. They're roaring now, revving their engines as they try to time the start just right. A man stands in front of them. He's calm, smiling and joking with the other racers. He's in his element. This is unsafe. It's illegal. But there are no fights, and there are no crashes, even if there might be some close calls. This man has made it that way by quietly exerting his authority. Now his arm is raised. He's getting ready to start the race. He turns for only a second, but I get a good look at the back of his vest. Street Racers International, it reads. I can see the familiar logo of the Brotherhood. The racer and the cop car. For now, it's the only police in sight. This Brotherhood member, at least for tonight, he has stepped into Big Willie's role. In a way, it is Big Willie. He's here. He's wherever racers come together in peace. The man in the vest drops his arm, and the drivers speed off into the night. Larger Than Life is reported and written by me, your host, Daniel Miller, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producer is Grant Irving. The editor is Catherine St. Louis. Kimmy Yoshino is our story supervisor. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Additional production by Karin Navatia. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Turek. Music by Nolan Schneider and Grant Irving. The sound engineer is Mike Heflin. Research by Scott Wilson. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. And copy editing by Rubena Azhar. Larger Than Life was recorded at Los Angeles Times Studios in El Segundo, California. The archival audio in this episode is courtesy of KABC-TV, The Port of Los Angeles, and Fabian Arroyo. Music from the film Joyride to Nowhere is courtesy of Cinevision Global, Inc. For more on Big Willie Robinson, including videos, photo galleries, and essays, visit latimes.com slash larger-than-life. Join our Facebook group. You can find us at Larger Than Life Podcast to discuss the story. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel N. Miller. You can also learn more about the story by subscribing to our Play Next newsletter. Go to latimes.com slash playnext. Larger Than Life is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. Thanks to the following people at the LA Times for their work on this podcast. Myung Chun, Alan Hagman, Paige Heimson, Robert Meeks, and Erica Varela. Larger Than Life is a production of LA Times Studios with support from Neon Hum Media. Now dragons full of love and not hate. Hot ride. Run what you're from. No ride. Run what you're from. Skate for free. Run what you're from.